0: Hello and welcome to BSI's Big Sustainability Ideas podcast, hosted by David Thatcher, Sebastian Van Dort, and Nick Fleming, who between them have deep sector experience in energy, ESG, transport, and mobility. The idea is an ambitious one, but simple too. Each episode, our aim is to meet with many of the biggest, most influential figures in sustainability, to understand where we are, how we got here, and crucially, where this fascinating topic is headed to help all of us navigate the future. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show.
1: So, in the last few years, there's been an increased focus on net zero and sustainability, and um, many countries have declared a climate emergency. So, the buzzwords of resilient sustainability and green economic recovery have um, sort of never been more important. And we really wanted to have conversations with business leaders and industry experts to understand what uh, really is um, progress really is being made and, and what are some of the real issues so we are very pleased to have with us dr tony Velaspas who is the head of environment and decarbonisation
2: at trl tony thank you so much for joining us on the podcast first of all um, so we wanted to talk to you about the carbonization of transport given that transport is the largest carbon emitting sector and effectively we know that net zero won't be achieved without transport so it's great to have an expert with us. And um, can
3: you explain a little bit more about what TRL does and what your role is at TRL? TRL is a non-for-profit research and technology organization. And uh, we provide innovative, um, clean transportation solutions that are aligned with the climate change targets and the different United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The company used to be part of the mm, Department for Transport until the 90s, and then it has been an RTO since then. Uh, As a non-for-profit RTO, we have some commercial activity, but we also invest in projects that don't generate profit because we have this social uh, um, dimension as well. So we we invest in uh, many uh, innovative uh, uh, projects coming from EPSRC, Innovate UK, Horizon, Europe, and so on. We also have uh, quite a few projects uh, uh, abroad, and we are very focused on improving the transport system in low- and medium-income countries as well. And what can you
2: tell us about your role specifically Tony as, as head of environment and decarbonization? what does
3: that involve so part of my role involves um, um, business development <laughs> uh, and um, provide technical uh, solutions that mitigate the negative externalities of transport and basically I try to push forward the decarbonisation agenda to try to create a better world for the future. So anything that relates to uh, air quality, greenhouse gas emissions, um, uh, biodiversity and so on, is something that we are very passionate about. No, that's fantastic. And And how did you get into the area? I guess that as most of things in life by accident, I guess, um, before joining TRL, I used to work in energy systems at UCL. I worked for a number of years in logistics as a research, uh, logistics researcher for a large um, 4PL organization. Um, but I've been always very interested in transport. I did an, an, an entry. Doctorate in engineering in low carbon technologies for heavy duty fleets, where I look at um, uh, heuristics models for the optimization of uh, heavy goods vehicles. Um, also, I did a master in, in transport and a PhD in logistics and operations. So I've been always very interested in optimized systems. And also, I've been a little bit of an eco-warrior always, so I have tried to to do things that can improve um, uh, society.
1: So. Tony, uh, for, for me, there's an interesting part of how do we decarbonize transport, and I know that's sort of a big question, and transport is, is a very large uh, sort of area, but, but as a broad brush, how do you uh, feel we, we, we are decarbonizing transport, uh, and, and what are the sort of broad brush approaches to, uh, to achieving that as we move to 2050?
3: Well, there is not a silver silver bullet to, to decarbonize transport. There is a myriad of uh, approaches that we should undertake. Obviously, the first way, uh, the easiest and and, uh, more clear way of uh, decarbonizing transport is by reducing the demand. So we have seen this behavioral change driven by coronavirus in which people are working from home. So if companies uh, try to promote hybrid meetings and uh, remote working that would have a massive impact so that would be the first one the second is promoting active travel and micro mobility walking and cycling and uh, using the right transport mode for the try the, the the right uh, capacity factor you one person is going to use a a, a Only a car, rather than a car, maybe we should use, if we can, a bike or an e-scooter, something like that. Uh, The third way uh, is uh, decarbonizing the energy pathways. Moving away from fossil fuels or any other fuel that has a carbon molecule, that would be a a good uh, starting point. So electricity generated from renewables or hydrogen produced in a way that the carbon is sequestered or from renewables as well. Some other uh, pathways such as nuclear thermal water splitting or something like that, that also would be a good approach. Then we have as well the use of transport uh, powertrains that are more efficient. So electric powertrains are more efficient than mechanical ones. Also, we should be looking at decarbonizing the manufacturing of vehicles using low-carbon materials, green, green, um, green hydrogen used to manufacture steel, for example. Instead of blast furnace, use iron, iron reduction. These type of things can reduce the body emissions of the transport system as well. And then by optimizing the transport system as a whole, uh, and. Uh, using uh, approaches as, as mobility as a service where we could incentivize the modes that are more uh, carbon efficient or with a lower carbon footprint that would be a good approach i think
2: T- tony what you've described there kind of highlights i think how complex this is as a challenge really and the you know it, it needs a systems approach doesn't it it needs a holistic approach so Again, I know it's a really tricky question, but what, what's stopping that happening? What are the what are, do you see as the key barriers in, uh, in in being able to transition to decarbonized transport? And are there any kind of particular short-term solutions that we're starting to see coming through?
3: Well, the the, the first uh, the challenge the first challenge that we we have is the total cost of ownership of of if you are in a logistics company. Uh, the, the profits are two or three percent. So a few pence per ton kilometer make a huge difference in the bottom line. So we have to get um, technologies that are environmentally uh, beneficial, but also we have to consider all other aspects of sustainability. Who is going to pay for that? We don't have to forget the social dimension. As for example, the tickets, the fares will be more expensive, and then the poorer will suffer this the most. So we have to consider the the whole uh, sustainability uh, aspects of any any solution. But as you, Sebastian, have uh, mentioned before, we have to look at the whole energy system approach. Right, we have to consider that some things are coming now, like battery electric vehicles. They have a place, but might not be as easy as people think. we have constraints in supply of uh, energy and unless we deploy and we are seeing it this these recent weeks, the prices of electricity are skyrocketing. so we need perhaps um, more interconnectors, maybe we need baseline baseline loads like nuclear power. we have to deploy more renewables, but then they are not very reliable, then we need to deploy energy storage to balance the grid. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fundamental to understand the makeup of the energy system to identify what is the optimal solution for a country. Then there are other factors that uh, are quite challenging. Um, some of these new solutions are coming, like battery electric vehicles, um, they use uh, rare materials earths; those are mining countries with not much regard with the, to the, towards the environment. Also, this creates a massive environmental footprint in terms of pollution, water pollution, and, and so on. Other other uh, materials uh, that are used in batteries, like cobalt, for example, they are mined in areas of the planet where there is not much regard towards working conditions, um, there are child labor, slavery, uh, funding, warlords, and this type of things, so, you know, when we think about electric vehicles as a very, uh, maybe I'm spoiling here the, <laughs> the, the party, but when we think about uh, battery electric vehicles as the big solution, well, uh, we still have a lot of work to do. We need to move to new battery chemistries, new materials, also try to improve the, the energy security and reduce the geopolitical impacts of uh, going towards uh, particular solutions. As well, other challenges that we have uh, noticed uh, from our studies with uh, the, the automotive automotive uh, supply chain and logistics operators is that there is not a very stable policy landscape. And that um, leads to some of these companies having to think very carefully about how they invest uh, in low carbon uh, vehicles. So we need uh, clear policy guidelines in terms of subsidies Research and innovation policy, uh, what is going to happen with the renewable transport fuel certificates, and, and so on. Some of those uh, vehicles, like uh, trains, rolling stock, life expectancy could reach 50 years. Ships, also, life expectancy is, is very long. So, companies need to invest now in those technologies mm. uh, that will deliver the policy target that is decarbonization. But it's very difficult for them. To, to invest in those when they don't know what is going to happen.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting that I think you sketch a really sort of good thing that that's Nick and I always always talk about a you need to think about whole system solutions, you know, and, and actually, as you point out, the supply chain is very much a global uh, aspects. So, you need to sort of look look globally. And then as you say, some of these investment timelines are, all, you know, you're looking at sort of 50 years, as as you're saying. So, again, it needs to be reliable and you need to know if you're investing in something that you can can rely on that. Uh, right. So, that, there's so many sort of questions for answers. Um, I, I was wondering if you can sort of explain to us how the work that you are doing at TRL um, supports this sort of wider journey
3: to to net zero. So, we um, have a very holistic view to decarbonization. So, we tackle different fronts. We are very interested in decarbonizing um, construction plants, the roads. So, we look at life cycle assessments, uh, new materials, the use of recyclable materials in road construction, the end of life of those materials as well the possibility of um, recycling some of these materials as well. Then we um, support companies to improve efficiency. So it's it's a a good idea to plan ahead before building a road and uh, optimize uh, the, the construction those uh, type of infrastructures, and maybe consider the use of uh, digital twins and connected and autonomous plants to maximize efficiencies. And then we have the other part that is the the support for moving towards zero emission fleets. And in that area, we produce techno-economic analysis. We produce uh, feasibility studies. We uh, design trials, manage trials, monitor and evaluate uh, those trials and report them. Uh, And in that area, we have a a very broad range of uh, areas of expertise, including uh, end-to-end safety frameworks, um, safety governance, Uh, vehicle analytics platforms that can help us to understand how the vehicles are used and how they could uh, be improved to deliver uh, lower carbon solutions. We are involved in many projects looking at uh, electric roads, uh, hydrogen fuel cells, hydrogen internal combustion projects. And um, yeah, this is something that we feel very passionate about. And we have been Uh, we have been been, uh, investing in winning this type of work recently. Thanks, Tony. Um, Just thinking broadly, the the role that
2: the the consumer will have in this shift to decarbonisation is obviously potentially quite a significant one. Um, How how do you sense that consumers are responding to to the ambitions around the decarbonisation for transport? And that kind of the, the general transition that's there. Um, what's your sense of, of of the you know the role that consumers have to play and how that's looking currently?
3: Well, consumers are um, very interested in price. So unless we reach cost parity between battery electric vehicles and uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, diesel or petrol, it will be a little bit difficult. Furthermore, we can see that the purchasing power of consumers are, is going down. The inclusion of uh, digital technologies in vehicles make those vehicles are more expensive every time. And because this reduced purchasing power And the fact that many people don't have a parking space to recharge their own vehicle, that leads to many people needing to um, charge their batteries somewhere else far away often because there is not enough recharging infrastructure. And uh, there is some behavioral uh, aspects that need to be considered uh, when we consider, when we think about battery electric uh, implementation, right? Not everybody can afford to have a charging point in their house, and no one is very keen on, or very few people is very keen on having this range anxiety of thinking: Well, if I need the car tomorrow, will have battery? Or if I don't use the car for two weeks because I'm in lockdown, will have battery in two weeks' time? Uh, Do I have to go to the petrol station and wait there for 45 minutes and be late for my meeting? So we need some technology breakthroughs like solid state batteries or or something like that that might help to recharge the battery much faster and provide longer range at a convenient price, obviously. I think that the, the impact of those new technologies on user experience is extremely important to ensure that there is going to be a high uptake.
2: Yeah, and I think Seb, that's Seb. That's why the role of standards, I guess, is so important here, isn't it? It's about standardisation is going to play a role in helping to potentially alleviate some of those barriers in terms of, um, you know, uh, if we can support the uh, the rollout of a um, uh, EV charging infrastructure that's interoperable and reliable and accessible, um, and and the development of a battery supply chain that's sustainable, but also helps to reduce the cost of battery manufacture, then the price point for vehicles and issues like range anxiety could be improved. Seb, I know we were going to move on to. Yeah, something. well,
1: I, I think for me that there is one one interesting aspect, and and I'm sort of slightly taking a sort of left turn here, but but for me there is a very interesting aspect in in you know which we look at with energy, and which we talk about quite a lot, and we talked about it this morning, uh, if if you remember, Nick, about sort of a just transition, uh, <clears throat> right? So, you know, you we, energy is becoming very expensive now, and those that are least able to afford it. You know, we'll struggle the most, and, and if we look at decarbonisation of transport and electric vehicles, there is a sort of very big question: how do we make sure that we have a just transition, yeah. and that we don't, you know, and that people that that you know don't have uh, access to uh, off-road parking, you know, can't can't participate, or or those that least can afford it have to pay the most. And if you look at you know ultra-low emission zones and and, and all of that. Mm-hmm there is a very big societal question there to say, how, how do we make sure that he transition to net zero, doesn't fall mm-hmm. particularly on those, you know least able to, to sort of afford it. So that's a sort of wider policy question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah,
3: shows. actually, um, you make a very good point um, because um, if we want people to buy electric vehicles, we need to provide the recharging infrastructure. But who pays for that inf- recharging infrastructure? Should it be the user? Well, then I need to, have a space always available in front of my house that no one else can use for me rechar- recharging my vehicle, if the recharging points are publicly, publicly available, who is paying for those recharging points? Should the local authority pay for those recharging points? Because at the prices of electricity that we had until very recently, at 15 pence per kilowatt-hour, well. The, the return on the investment is is quite poor i would imagine for most o- operators so if we would expect the public sector fund these type of investments well why why should the public sector do that why should the public sector fund a recharging point for someone who can afford a 30k or 40 or 50k battery electric vehicle rather than investing in public transport so there are a lot of uh, uncertainty there and uh, difference of opinion, and um, but even in the commercial sector, uh, it still is unclear the, the the business models. Um, should uh, I mean you were talking about electric roads a, a moment ago? That is a very interesting technology. We are working on that. And uh, it's a good idea because by having electric roads on the strategic road network, a logistic operator, for example, could uh, downsize the recharging needs in the warehouse because they would have this opportunistic recharging on the motorway. If they know that they are always going to have this infrastructure there, they can top up the batteries uh, of their um uh, 20% during a trip, then they can downsize the warehouse uh, infrastructure by 20%. They can also perhaps downsize the battery 20%, and the battery is one of the most expensive uh, components uh, of a vehicle. So there are benefits there, but it's still unclear who is going to pay for that uh, electric road. Uh, And um, That is made to to the idea of deploying energy storage with uh, electric road systems, because that energy storage would provide this confidence to the logistics operators to know that they will always have that, even if there is a blackout. And um, at the same time, that would improve the resilience of the transport network, but as well, the, the whole energy system yes
1: yeah no it's, it's fascinating I've, I've got a sort of not, not a sort of question related to that there is a lot that needs to happen but obviously you're very close to sort of developments etc etc is there anything in in you know this area you know at the technology or a development that you are particularly excited about that you think yes that that could could really make a difference and and, and that is sort of you know if, if we're looking at let's say 2030 which is the target when we stop you know uh, combustion engines you know being sold as new is there
3: anything in that sort of time frame that you say you know I'm I'm really excited about that I'm very excited about the prospects of hydrogen interesting hydrogen uh, has some advantages versus batteries yes no doubt about it is less efficient than a battery electric uh, motor but it provides this user experience that everybody values so much. You can use it the same as uh, as a diesel vehicle. You can go to the hydrogen refueling station, top up in five minutes the whole tank, have a range of 400 miles. If you need more fuel in your trip, it takes a few minutes, five minutes maximum, three minutes. So that, I think, is a very appealing proposition. Yes, it's not that efficient, but at the end of the day, what consumers care about, the reality, is that they care about price. So if the total cost of ownership of the, of the vehicle is similar to a battery electric vehicle, I think that most users would be the, inclined to, to go for a hydrogen vehicle. So that hasn't happened yet, but with the right economies of a scale, it's likely to happen. And hydrogen could be produced from renewables in the UK, as it would be electricity, obviously it would make more sense to use locally produced electricity for powering battery electric vehicles. But let's not forgive, forget forget. Sorry, that uh, hydrogen can also be produced in low- and medium-income countries where renewable could be very cheap, and it could be shipped in gas pipelines or in, in, in ships to the UK. And the whole solution could, could be cost-competitive uh, really soon. We're going to ask you to stare into your crystal ball now, put your
2: kind of future looking goggles on. What do you think our roads are going to look like and our broader transport system is going to look like um, in 2050? And um, how, how, how is that going to look different to, net, to how it does today? And how do you think you're going to be traveling around in
3: 2050? So for one, I would expect uh, that the roads are net zero. So the materials used in roads and the the techniques to build the transport infrastructure consider net zero uh, from the materials to the techniques, uh, almost everything. Uh, I would expect to see connected and autonomous uh, vehicles around for cars, uh, HGVs. At the end of the day, um, cars um, are already on the roads that have a high degree of automatization, so it shouldn't be very complicated. And also because we will move more towards a shared economy uh, with big fleet operators. Those operators, what they want to see is those vehicles operating 24-7, so we will see connected and autonomous vehicles, even logistics as well. And um, those vehicles will be powered by electricity. It could happen that it might be battery electric powertrains or hydrogen fuel cells. It depends on the transport mode. For a, for a lighter transport modes, like cars and so on, 100%, I think the future will be battery electrics. For rail, it depends on the speeds and the range required. As you might know, um, electrification of of, of rail Cost around 8 to 10 million per kilometer. So it is, it is unfeasible to electrify the whole uh, rail network. So if those trains are uh, operating in regions with uh, the right uh, energy infrastructure, they might be able to use batteries or hydrogen. If so, depending on the speed, if the vehicle have to operate at low speed and low range, it will be battery electric um, power trains. If the range is uh, longer and uh, they require higher speed, hydrogen might play a role. In shipping, we will see probably a combination of uh, hydrogen, ammonia or liquid hydrogen organic carriers, depending on the distance and also the energy infrastructure and for aviation i'm hopeful that for uh, long range we will have um, hydrogen power uh, airplanes for drones um, is likely to be electric drones in urban environments but in, in for deliveries and long distance is more likely to be hydrogen or or uh, a hydrogen carrier
1: type of fuel Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. That was uh, sort of very, very insightful. I think that's a sort of very uh, exciting, uh, exciting future to uh, uh, to sort of look at. Um, I mean, the change that we're going to see in the next few years is uh, is going to be uh, you know a- a- absolutely uh, paramount, but absolutely needed. But but you know, the, I think it will also go quicker and quicker, particularly if we want to reach our target. You know, 2030 is is you know nearly eight years away, right? And and that's when we start. Uh, selling, uh, you know, internal combustion engines and and, and move to uh, to other low emission vehicles. So, this timeline of 2050, I think we'll, we'll go around sort of v- very quickly. So, I want to uh, thank you very much. I think we'll conclude it there. It was sort of very insightful for me. I, I definitely uh, sort of learned a lot. Was there anything else that you um, want to sort of leave us with? Any, uh, any, uh, any thoughts,
3: uh, anything that we should be aware of? Well, yes, actually, thank you for the opportunity. I have enjoyed it very much to participate in the podcast. Enjoy that. Uh, thank you. I think one of the main thoughts is that by 2030, we will start to see a phase out of the fossil fuel uh, um, power trains, And that means that we will still have these fossil fuel vehicles by 2040, 2042 because the average life expectancy of a vehicle in the UK is around 12 to 13 years. So we really need to start very early to take this seriously if we want to really reach net zero by 2050. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting
2: point. And um, i just like to echo, yeah, Seb's, Seb's um, thanks for, for, for joining us, Tony. And I think you've given us a lot of food for thought today as well to, to ponder on.
0: You've been listening to BSI's Big Sustainability Ideas podcast. To find out more about how BSI can support your business, visit www.bsigroup.com and download our little book of Net Zero as well as our annual Net Zero Barometer Report. Meanwhile, to hear more about the stories behind the standards, please also check out BSI's Education podcast, which we highly recommend. Thank you and see you soon on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts.